Conspiranormal Podcast proudly presents the Strange Realities Conference. Strange Realities. Come join us for one day of presentations on the paranormal with live music at night featuring Tim Banal, the rise and fall of the Flat Earth Theory, Joshua Kutchin, alien hybrid lore, Joe Damari, pushing the limits of reality, Guy Malone, Roswell 1947, what really happened, Timothy Renner, Pennsylvania Wildman, and added to the lineup, Mark Anthony Wyatt, Cornish Legends and UFO Sightings, Zach Hunt, a presentation of his book on Rapture, followed by a live recording of the Conspiranormal Podcast, more speakers and music acts to be announced. October 19, 2019, SIR National. Tickets and info at www.strangerealitiesconference.com. $40 at the door, $30 pre sale. Welcome to Nox Mente. Tonight's guest is Rachel Pollock. Rachel is the author of 41 books, including two award-winning novels, Unquenchable Fire, winner of the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and Godmother Knight, winner of the World Fantasy Award. She has also written a series of books about tarot cards and known around the world, a book of poetry, Fortune Lovers, and has been translated with scholar David Vine, Sophocles Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus Rex, under the title Tyrant Oedipus. She designed and drew her own tarot deck, the Shining Tribe Tarot. With artist Robert K. Place, she has created two more decks, the Burning Serpent Oracle and the Raziel Tarot. She has taught and lectured on four continents for 11, on four continents, period. <laughs> for 11 years, she taught in Goddard's College MFA writing program. Rachel lives in New York's Hudson Valley and is joining us tonight. Thank you very much and welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello? Yeah. Oh, I thought mine <laughs> dropped out. Rachel, welcome to Nox Mente. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. I already gushed on you in the pre-show, and everyone that read my <laughs> tweet, and anyone that knows me knows how much I just adore your work and feel honored that you're here. You're a sacred elder, and uh, I'm just thrilled. So and thank you again. Them. Oh, very happy. <laughs> So let's get right into this. Uh, um, tell us about the world you grew up in as far as the stuff that sticks out, like the pop culture, things that stick out that kind of put, give us a foundation for where, where you are and how you moved forward in your life creatively. So um, I was born in Brooklyn in 1945 and lived there until I was, I guess, was nine. And then we moved to Kipsy, New York, 
Um, and that's the place I consider home, even though certainly Brooklyn was home too. But um, I just feel Poughkeepsie is the place I, I grew up in, really. And um, and then I moved. I went to college and graduate school. And then I moved um, to Amsterdam, Europe. I was in Europe from 1917 in Amsterdam, most of the rest of London. And then came back. I now live right back. Oh, about um, 15 miles from north of Poughkeepsie. But it's a village rather than a city. So that's the basic facts. In terms of pop culture, I remember loving comic books as a kid, and I still do. I've written comic books occasionally, which is one of my yeah, favorite things. I do want to talk about Doom Patrol. Too. Yeah, thank you. And um, also, uh, fairy tales were a very big thing for me as a kid. We used to get in, in public school, we would get every beginning of the year a, a reader. You know, proper reading skills of the year. And I remember that I would always wait for it eagerly and look right away for what fairy tales in. That was the part I cared about the most. Fantasy, books, science fiction were very big deals for me. Um, and also, I was a very big fan of Dr. Very young. I think actually, I think my, I'm pretty sure the first book I read for myself was the first book Dr. Seuss wrote. Which is something like uh, to think I all I imagine it all on Mulberry Street, something like that. Whenever I go to Mulberry Street, I immediately think of that book, <laughs> and that that book was all about the power of the imagination. And so that, to me, is my theme in life, really. It's, uh, back in the '60s and the radical days, which was significant to me in college at the time, later on graduate school, um, there was a famous slogan: "All powers of the imagination," and that's still kind of my slogan. Um, sometimes I call myself a knight of the imagination, which is a bit common. Um, dreams have been a big <laughs> I love that in my work, and I actually used I did a series of kind of um, surreal stories called fake dreams, and what they were were parodies of the kind of ways dreams work. And they were loads of fun, really outrageous. Um, that's kind of some of the influences I had. I used to watch watch television. No fantasy stuff, usually stuff that people way back then. Did you, when you were young, did you have um, like the typical nightmares or think, you know, fears of under the bed or in the dark, any of that kind of stuff? No, I, I don't remember that actually. I don't remember having any of that, though maybe I didn't. I just forgotten it, you know. But I will tell you um, an amazing story that I really in my mind a lot in recent years. So when I was around nine, it might I might not have that right. It might have been later or earlier. I think of it as nine. I had a series of terrible nightmares every single night. And it was very scary. And my parents were very disturbed about it. Doctors and stuff. Nobody really had a clue about what to do about it. And then they ended because my great-grandmother told my mother, I didn't know about this, told my mother that um, to take a... Um, a child's Jewish prayer book, and put it under the mattress. And the dream stopped. They just stopped. I, I didn't know years later that that was there. So it was really a kind of wonderful magic moment that I found out about later. But the only dream I remember for all that time was a dream in which, it, was, it doesn't even sound that scary, but it was somehow scary. A dream in which the bears had either escaped from the or come into the woods in the city. And rounded up all the humans and imprisoned us in cages under this under the street. Basically, they were like the sewer poles. You know, in, I guess this must have been like in New York City. 
in Brooklyn because that's where you had sewage grates, you know, round grates for water to go down. Yeah. So just remember, we were all in there looking up through the, through the grates of the kind of the cage, and there were the bears all staring down at us. And that's what I remember. And so frightened. I had that feeling of being trapped and the bears staring down at us. And then years later, when I was doing research called the Body of the Goddess and traveling to sacred places of Greece and elsewhere, um, I went to a place in Obrora, I think the current name is Barona, down on the very tip of the peninsula in Attica. And there was a temple to Artemis, who I went to see. Artemis is very important to me. Um, as a goddess, it was very personal to me. And I found out that at that place, she had um, girls who were nine years old were taken to be her initiates. And they took away the human clothing and they dressed in bear skin. They were called uh, bear cubs. So to me, that dream that I remember so vividly was Artemis claiming me. Oh, wow. As one of her, as one of her people. <laughs> you know? And as I said, and she'd already at that point, some years, very, very significant ways that would go personal in terms of work I was doing. So it was a very powerful thing. What do you think That's... about the new moon landings being named Artemis? Oh, I think it's great. It's about time. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, the name of Apollo was ridiculous because Apollo was Artemis' brother. He was right. the god of the sun. You know, she's of the moon. Yes. I'm about to, May, I'm going to be leading another trip to Greece, which I'm really excited about. We're going to a place called Delos, island near Mykonos, famous vacation island. And Delos has no modern building. It's no city. There's no town. There's no buildings. Just some ancient temple statuary. And it's the birthplace of Artemis and Apollo. And so I'm really thrilled to be doing that and to go there and you know, connect to that. Um... Oh yeah, that's gonna be exciting. I love this story, uh, both for how it played out and how you tied it into uh, your relationship with Artemis and also the folklorish stuff of putting the book under your- Yeah, isn't that great? And, and it worked, you know? I really love the folkloreish stuff, and it's it, it always actually I should say it never surprises me when it does. I know <laughs> somehow me too, but it's in, uh, it also surprises me. I have both reactions. Yes, you know? yes. There's a there's a wonderful um, tarot um, teacher and celebrant in California, San Francisco, named Thalassa, and she had she described that reaction that we have as um, T S R W, which stands for this shit really works. <laughs> SRW. I've written this yeah. down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this shit really works. It's a great line, you know? <laughs> oh, it's good. Well, you know, it is true. Yeah. And, and I collect, I try to, I've been my whole lifetime trying to collect more folkloric stuff uh, yeah. just as I go. So I'm glad I'm bad at Yeah. That's, a, you know, in college, I kind of self educated myself on mythology and folklore mm -hmm. and tradition. Um, on my own, totally. I wasn't taught in my classes. I went into classes referencing it, but not that much. And I didn't particularly know a group of people. I just did it on my own. I just got interested. I just put around, found all the books I could. And I just ever since been doing that, reading wonderful studies and things. Yeah, it's, oh, I can tell from, from your body of work, too, that, I mean, it's all the folklore, all of this beautiful magic and mythos. It's so interwoven with your body of work. Yeah. So yeah. I want to, so here too, in the dreamscape. So this, this nightmarish stuff, 
Do you remember being a child that was a heavy dreamer or not? Not before that. I don't remember if I was or not. I, you know, I imagine I must have been since I've been a heavy dreamer all my life otherwise. So probably was when I was young. too. Yeah, that, that would make sense. And, you know, it's hard. Well, one of the things we get to a little bit later is this thin line between memory and, and dream. Yes. And yeah. all, it's a, such a thin line. So let's get to the uh, architecture of dreams. Like, how do you, and, and this could be, I guess more specifically, if things have changed, give us a hint on that. But how in general do you experience the dreamscape? And what I mean by that are the mechanics, the color, taste, sound, all that. You know, I don't have that vivid a memory of those kinds of sexual qualities. They're mostly kind of events, you know? Mm -hmm. and most, most of my dreams are, you know, fairly pedestrian, kind of a little bit disturbing, sometimes a lot disturbing, sometimes happy. But they're not spectacular. And they're not strange and weird. Most parts are kind of, they're sort of like life situations. Most of the time, not pleasant ones. There's a famous psychiatrist, I forget who it was now, who said the great preponderance of dreams are unpleasant, which is a very important statement because I think that, you know, in popular culture, dreams are often thought of as kind of like wispy, kind of wonderful things, you know? Um, you know there are a number of decks, dream tarot decks and dream oracle decks, and the pictures are nothing like dreams. They're these like beautiful, strange, airbrushed, you know, pretty things. No one dreams like that. Um, so, you know, well, that's most dreams for me, but some dreams, the kinds I remember pretty much forever, are dreams that go to a whole other level that are, you know, deeper and connect to supernatural kind of thing. But, you know, those are kind of initiatory dreams, dreams that take place. Those are the ones that really stand out in my mind, but the quality of the dream is usually not that different than the quality of daily life, just the events are strange. See, that was kind of the connection I was trying to make. I do want to side note here. Yeah, the, the, this is why I don't use these other kinds of decks, like dream decks and stuff like that. I, I can't pull up to them. <laughs> I just cannot do it. Yeah, I understand that, yeah. And I'm not quite sure why people think dreams have these wonderful, you know, magical, little wispy, <laughs> Fairyland kind of quality. They, I don't understand it. You know, I may, maybe it's maybe it's because I don't have those things. Maybe other people do. So maybe I'm just being too narrow in my perspective. That you know, maybe maybe lots of people dream like that, but I just I don't. You know, ask Nish what you were asking me about the dream tarot divination thing before the show. Oh, what I was saying was that I I did this thing with dreams and tarot. I learned from a woman named Gail Fairfield many many years ago. We heard a wonderful book, Voice Sent Tarot. I think it's now called Everyday Tarot. Anyway, Michael um, Fairfield came up with it's like one paragraph in her book. That book is amazing. She's these short little things, and they'll be stuff I'll be doing for 20 years, you know, and developing on my own, my own way, but pretty much sticking to scale. But um, so, what she suggested with dreams that you write down the dream, because the dream you care, you want to interpret, you want to understand better. You write it down, and then you write it down as a sequence of steps. Events, feelings, things you experience, things you see, whatever stands out to you as you know a moment in the dream of some significance. And then you shuffle the tarot cards, and then you pull a card for every everything you've written down. So there's, there's 
Because most times when people use tarot to interpret dreams, they're asking questions about the dream. Right. Saying, what does this dream mean? Why is it important? Um, what should I do about it, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a totally different thing. This is what some people, psychology go doubling. So you have a set of images from the dream and you double it with the images from the tarot. And what I say when I talk about this in my classes is that dreams are a private symbolic language and tarot is a public symbolic language. When we share symbolic language. Yes. So the tarot will give us entry into our own language of the dream by bouncing off something that's more not exactly cultural, but it's not just personal. And the effects are extremely dramatic. I mean, sometimes it's open people's lives up in phenomenal ways, really reveal things about their dreams they never would have understood otherwise that are sometimes are life-changing. It's an amazing thing to do. And I do it, you know, sort of, not exactly every year of a class, but kind of every other year, pretty much. You know, you really often. What, what book is this? The, Yale Fairfield's book, I think it was called Choice Center Tarot, and it's been reissued as Everyday Tarot. I hope it's still in print. Great. Choice into Tarot. Choice Centered. Oh, Centered. Okay. Yeah, Tarot, or Everyday Tarot. Okay, I will look at because I'm not familiar with it. So. Yeah, no, not enough people are. And um, so, you know, people should be, it's wonderful. It's real. It's fun. You know, people talk about the you know, tarot kind of revolution that happened in the 80s, you know, with my book. and Mary Oh, Green. yeah, yes. <laughs> and, and, Mary Kay Greer, awesome. Yeah, and then Gail Fairfield was like a big part of that, but not, not everyone knows her, you know. Yeah, I, you know what? I, it had to have been around in, in my circle. I was really, I mean, this is kind of my coming few years, but I was deeply steeped in all of this. Uh -huh. Of course, Mary Kay Greer's workbook and then your 78 Degrees thought. I, I feel... I feel like I've countered this, but I'm going to look it up. Uh, and anything you recommend that is around tarot, I am there. Okay. <laughs> okay, so back to, back to. Yeah. Hello? Uh, okay. <laughs> she drops out sometimes. Just okay, so. that's okay. Yeah. Fine. Yeah, it's the gremlin. So. In, okay, so back into the mechanics of how you dream. So we got some of that. I want to maybe look at place. So are there places in your dreamscape that you return to that may, of course, have altered or something, but you are always familiar with them no matter how they've altered? No, I don't think so, to be honest. I don't, I don't, I don't think I have a sense in your dreams of, I'm coming back to a place I know. Okay. So for me, each stream seems to be itself and not um, part of the series, as far as I can tell. Well, that's interesting. And I definitely don't mean a series. So, like, I have, I have, like, a, there's, like, I'll go places, and I'm like, oh, I, I know this place, you know, and somehow it's changed, but I know it, or a house that's really familiar. I actually have a house I go to, but it's never. Really? How interesting. Wow. Yeah. I've not, 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 not experienced that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty common for me, but it, and it's about 50-50 with all the people I've talked to and all the research I've done. So it's it's just of interest. And then uh, also back on these small little details, are you able to read in dreams? Wow, that's interesting. I know I've never known. I don't know. I don't think I've ever tried it. 
Wow, that's a really good question, you know? Yeah, it's one of those things that some people can, some people cannot. And and there's some conviction around it with some people that suggest it's impossible. <laughs> so I, I think I've heard that. Yeah, that's interesting. But I don't um, know. I have, I have not personally heard of people who've experienced that. And it's, it's kind of interesting you mentioned it because since I read so much in my waking life, you think I would try to read it. But I don't remember that happening. Yeah. yeah. Well, for me, it's always, it's pretty blurry and it, it all breaks down to glyphs, you know, more so like our uh, symbols. And when the, if I try to hone in on anything, so it's kind of in the middle, I think with that. And then on another aspect of uh, your basic dream stuff, what about mood? Um, well, I mean, I guess it depends if it's going to be a, a happy dream or not a happy dream. <laughs> so sometimes there's a mood of, you know, kind of a bit of anxiety. Um, sometimes a happy moment to see what's going on. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel there's that much through things in my dream. I, I don't feel like, you know, this things that continue from one dream to another. Each dream seems to be itself. Uh-huh. Um, certainly, there, there are, you know, a lot of the usual kind of things of trying to get somewhere and I can't get there. Um, you know, that kind of anxiety dream that everybody has, which I, 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 I parodied in, in stories things about that. Yeah. Um, you know, someone's trying to get somewhere and can't do it. So mm -hmm. there's those, there's some, you know, the famous thing about um, after you've been to college, you dream that you realize that an exam's coming and of course you took you got to every 10 classes. You know that one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when I started teaching, I dreamed that I had scheduled each um, certain class, a certain class, and forgot to ever show up. Oh, no. <laughs> and, now, and now it was exam time. I was supposed to give an exam and, and grade people. <laughs> so um, there's a famous New York Times columnist, Russell Baker. I think it's Russell Baker wrote about this humorist. And he said that he imagined the president dream that um, he was elected president and forgot ever to go to the White House. And now it's four years later, he's up for re-election. Oh. <laughs> I forgot to ever show up. <laughs> oh my so god! So that's a kind of universal kind of Yeah, that's. I mean, most of my dreams are really special, you know. Yeah, except it sounds those, like. Except for this dream, spectacular. Yeah, it, 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 well, yeah, it sounds like yours are like just the basic working through, you know, your yeah the daily stuff or mental chatter that kind of that level. Like, so, should, I, should I tell you a dream that's not like that? Or you want to yes. Oh yeah, I want to get into all of that. So, so he has a dream that really was wonderful and that um, it won't sound that way at first, but it was just a spectacular experience to have. So I dreamed that I was on a subway train. Um, my cousin used to live in Far Rockaway in New York. And to get there from the rest of the, I guess, from Brooklyn, uh, you had to go over a bridge. It's kind of long. It was the longest ride between stops in the subway. It's like nine and a half minutes over this iron bridge for water, you know. But so in the dream, um, we're in this car, the subway car, and it's a bit grimy, the subway cars often are. And we go over this bridge, um, the city's behind us, Manhattan's behind us, and we come, and suddenly the subway line ends in the woods. And we're just there in the woods, you know? And then I become aware that people in my subway car are being called into the car in front of us, and they're apparently being um, on trial or something, but apparently they're being executed. Killed, you know, 
And then it becomes my turn. And I can't remember if I was even that anxious. I remember like, you know, saying to my cousin, away here or something like that. I don't, I don't remember going to the room. I don't remember being executed, being killed. But I remember coming back out of the room where I was executed and sitting down and saying to my cousin, oh, that was great. I should have done it years ago. And then the train leaves. We start going back across, back on the lines. And instead of this grimy, old, in front of this really old subway train, I don't know if you've ever been subway trains, we just had this kind of rattan seat, rattan seat, woven. It's something you'd make in camp somehow. Anyway, but um, it was one of those all kinds of things. Then all of a sudden, all the seats were gleaming, you know, and the walls were gleaming, like light was coming off of them. Everything was. And we're going over the bridge, and I looked down at the bridge, which is, you know, dull iron, and now it's um, golden. And then I look ahead into Manhattan and the skyscrapers, and they're all made of crystal. And I just, and every light is everywhere. And I realized that I'm entering the heavenly city. And that's when I woke up. Oh, wow. That's Isn't incredible that imagery. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. What did you end up making of that? You know, I didn't. I just felt it. I had it as an experience because it was so wonderful. I've never even done the tower reading about it because the experience is perfect. I don't yeah. know. Like, I should sometime, but no. I, I, yeah, I leave I leave my dreams alone often unless they Yeah, I mostly do. Something ominous that I feel like I need to maybe take heed from. But that the imagery alone, I love the crystals. Oh, oh it's just you know, it's just such an astonishing thing, you know? But I mean so it was, you know you know, my my friend Peter Lamborn Wilson, I don't know if you know his writing, he's a brilliant writer. He's written about initiations and dream initiations in particular. Well, he would say, Well, this was an initiation. Initiations yeah. often involve death and rebirth, you know? Yeah, yes, of um, course. But there was no master. There was no, you know, if, the, if there was a spiritual master, he or she was in the car of execution. And I didn't meet, and I don't remember it, you know? Um, but I should, I, you know, have to do a reading and see what comes out. I think that would be, a, you know, it might be something really startling. You know? How long ago was that one? Oh, many years ago. I don't remember how long ago. Yeah. And that's, you know, I remember that. I remember, you know, there's a few dreams you Never forget, including some of the scary ones. I'll tell you the scariest thing I've ever had. It's very short. I was just going to ask for one of the scary yeah. ones. My mother, sadly, was killed in a car accident. Uh, one of the most dreadful moments of my life. And um, and sometime afterwards, not that long, months, I think, not years, um, I dreamed there was a knock on the door. And I opened it. My mother was standing there. And, and she didn't know she was dead. And it was, her body was all mangled from the accident, you know. And I woke up with that kind of terror thing, of gasping for breath. It was somehow so terrifying, you know. Did, horrible, mangled, dead person. No, she was dead. And that I, is, that's I, incredible. I, I, think, I think it was still like she was trying to come back into the world of the living. Because she didn't know she was dead. She couldn't accept it, you know. I haven't heard that before. And this was after you knew she had passed, oh, right? Oh, some months, some months after. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. a lot of people have these, the precog dreams with their loved ones that yes, yeah. they're in touch. Did you have more dreams with her be before or after that? Like around the time she passed? Um, not any particular ones that stand out in my mind. You know, because obviously I had dreams of my parents, but you know, not, nothing that was special particularly. Yeah. yeah, it's it, it's amazing though. Really, truly, a lot of people have the 
they know beforehand because they're somehow they're informed through the dream that wherever wherever we are in the dream space, they've been informed by it. Yeah. And so and so after that dream though, when she did not know she was dead, have any other follow-ups to that? Did she pop up after that? And how was the emotional aspect? Well, since I didn't really have, you know, I didn't have a desire to explore it that much and really pursue what it was about, it just was something I experienced and accepted, you know. Yeah. It didn't have a lot of, um, didn't, have, didn't follow up very much, particularly with things just by itself because it was so powerful. Yeah. Um, you know, like the execution room, which of course is also about death. But lately, I've become really aware of, I've become very aware of magical things in my life. Um, and one of them has, has to do with something that happened when I was um, 18, which is that I was, I was diagnosed as having terminal bone cancer. I had this thing on my um, neck, you know, my shoulder, neck, um, the slump, and my mother spotted it. And one day, we were outside, and very casually asked me if I'd been having any pains or anything in my arm. I said, oh, well, I've been having this tingling and, and my arm goes numb. I said, oh, oh, well, uh, we should take you to the doctor. She was terrified out of her mind. I didn't know what it was. Oh. And so they told my parents, they took an x-ray and they said, well, we'll have to open up and see, but we're pretty sure it's uh, bone cancer and it's terminal because that's spurs. The way bone cancer spreads, through other parts of the body, his spurs come off it. They go into the bloodstream. So my parents then, without telling me, went into this really heavy-duty praying session. And, um, and they, they made these vows, because we were Jewish and fairly traditional, but not, not that observant. So they, they, the house was kosher, and they never ate pork. They would eat a hamburger you know, in a restaurant. Yeah. So they, they made a vow to be completely kosher. I was scared. And the doctor opened me up. And what they found was um, a calcium deposit, which no one had ever heard of before. It was right. a very strange thing. The doctor got to write an article for the, one of the big medical journals. The um, operating theater was packed with people because they'd never seen anything like it before. It took them four hours to get rid of the hammer and chisel. Oh. Uh, <laughs> when I woke up, you know, if you have, if you have heavy duty anesthesia, no time passed. Not like we had sleep. Right. And so you wake up an instant later. So I went, you know, I was one of the off to sleep, you know, and like a few moments later, I woke up in agonizing pain. The worst shock I've ever had in my life, you know. Um, but, you know, so I recovered, you know. And then um, my mother, some years later, for something we were talking about, she told me about, you know, this vow and that it made and that God had scared me. And then years later, you know, just years ago, I was writing a letter to someone. We were talking about possible conversion stories. When someone says that, you know, their child was sick and they prayed Christ or God or whoever they would pray to, and the child was healed. These are often um, Christian conversion stories, you know. So now they're a believer, you know. And I was writing to him. I said, the trouble with that is that all over the world, any moment, there's probably a million people or more praying for someone to heal, and it doesn't happen. You can't use that as your evidence, you know? Then, right. Wait, 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 a wait, wait, I'm one of those people. I'm one who was healed, <laughs> you know? So I told them the story. And then I started to do a tower reading about it in the class. So I said, the first question I asked was, what happened when I was 15? 
And the car that came up was the chariot. And you know, what I really wanted to ask was, was it cancer in my parents' prayers changing? But I couldn't just, I just said, what happened? You know? And the car was the chariot. People were talking in the class about willpower and surrendering the world and you know, letting God take the reins, all stuff like that. And they said, wait, wait a second, wait. What's the astrological sign associated with the chariot? And they said, no, they said, it's cancer. Oh. So the deck found the only possible card to say, without question, yes, it was cancer, and it was a change. And so then I said, what was my parents' part in it? And it was the nine of swords, the woman sitting up in bed with her yes. hands covering her face, and she's weeping. And that, of course, was my mother. No? Oh my then I said, what impact did this have in my life? And it was a high priest. So even though I was not aware of what was happening in that experience until much later, it kind of sent me in the direction of my life, of being so many mysteries, you know, things, yes. tries to share them. And then I said, um, what lesson do I still have to learn? And the card was death. <laughs> and so, you know, I thought, oh, well, I didn't die then, so I haven't learned that lesson yet. <laughs> but I've recently become so fascinated by the idea that maybe I did die. Yes. Uh, and maybe I've been dead ever since. Yes. I mean, it sounds completely, yes. you know, psychotic. And I don't believe it in any kind of, you know, oh my God, it's true, it's true. But it's just this idea, you know. And so I, I, now I wonder if that dream I had about my mother didn't know she was dead. Really, I didn't know I was dead. <laughs> yeah, this there's is a old... big subject here, yeah. by the way. Yeah, there's, yeah. Oh, really? there's one of a um, friend of the show uh, who has a whole thing about how he has a theory that we all died in 2012. I know it's... Oh, of course. Yeah, but, that's right, 2012. Yeah, yeah that's... Yeah. Then, so, yeah, I mean, of course, Philip Dick writes about that stuff a lot. Yeah. Yes. One of my great, you know, gurus. Of course, Philip Dick was a master. Yeah. It's, but I, I just love that you brought that in here naturally because it, it is a place we go to on Nox Mente often. Aha. Uh -huh. Questioning because it, all these lines are really so blurry. And, uh, and, and in the end, life's transient, like everything else seems to be. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been questioning if I had died. Hello? experiences okay. I had that there's just no way how did I out did I robot out yeah well, you, okay. you do it like every five minutes it just it's just the way it is <laughs> every show oh, no. every show every time oh, you see this is the whole this is the show for me obviously place <laughs> 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 where I'm at home obviously <laughs> it, it, it happens when she gets excited and then it <laughs> it's true you know there's a famous line in in radio, they talk about dying on air. You, know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you, have, a whole, you have a whole different take on that. <laughs> it's been my twist. <laughs> it's dying live. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> wow, this is this is phenomenal, though. Okay, so but before I can, we... I can imagine you doing a show that begins now live from the land <laughs> of the dead. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, and it's even perfect because we're in October, you know. Yes, we're... that's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so before we get into those, those, uh, I wanna I wanna see about your relationship with like lucidity in the dreamscape, and as far up as out of body or astral projection. That I've not had much. Honest, I don't do lucidity. But, you know, are, they teach lucidity usually. It's the context of gaining control over your dreams. 
Yeah. And my feeling always is, don't you, shouldn't there be some part of your life you don't control? <laughs> no, because I think that dreams should be left out of our control. But I understand that people who are on a kind of more journey do more stuff with their dreams in the dreams. So they want, that's what they want to do. And I get that. But I have not, I have not pursued that particularly. I've also not had astral out-of-body experiences. I think I don't want to. I think it's a, not because the experience is frightening, because the physical experience separating would be frightening. Yeah. Uh, for a while, I was doing intense tarot meditation, which is use of tarot cards, spurring of energy. And I started having these sensations. Uh, first of all, I had a sensation of my body, of myself separating from my body to the left. It never quite happened until it was going to happen. And then I would feel that my body was massive, as massive as the earth, but was rising up and leaving, my, leaving me behind in certain It was very strange. Yes. So I, I interpreted as someone told me it was basically a Kundalini experience. And I knew I was not ready to handle it. So I just backed off meditating. Well, for me, those, those experiences, especially when you get really large or really small uh-huh. and all that, that, and I ha- started having this at a very, very young child. And, and they, I had a, a bad experience as a child. So that yeah. it was all anything outside of my body was welcome. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and so I'm like, Ooh, I want more of this. But what I have learned, especially just in, in my life of, of, being a prolific dreamer and then talking so long about dreams that that and so i'll come back to this that for me personally is always the cue that i'm getting ready to leave the bar ah, okay and so more so than a kundalini experience but that's just my personal take on it with that particular experience and you the key word you said was that you you know you're getting bigger and it's those kinds of things. Like I would even rotate and I'd fall down. Wow. I, you know, I, I remember falling under my bed and into wow. the floor. So yeah, the, those things, I personally think you're, you know, you're, get, you're on the verge of leaving your body. And also the fear of being out of the body is real. Most people experience it. And usually yeah, that's where I, I snap that back in. I jerk back in because I think I'm dying or I've died. Well, for me, it was just very unsettling physical sensation. Yeah. Um, and it was an unpleasant one, particularly the thing of, move, of shifting to the left. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I know it kind of like intellectually, because I know people who get involved in the etheric body and the astral body. So I know about this idea, but to experience it without feeling ready for it was kind of disturbing. Yeah. And how old were you when you experienced that? This was an adult. No, yeah. Yeah, I think because mine was so young and I was having such a bad yes. experience, it was like it was welcome. Yeah, I can imagine that totally. And so, and most yeah. people I know who have had, you know, actual projection, out of body experiences, had a great time, you know? Yeah, oh, yeah. They, I find them completely pleasurable once I get past the, and, and you know what, Rachel, this never ends. Every time I do get out, because it's not common, every time I do get out, I, it's a, I'm I'm lucky the times I don't think I've died <laughs> because okay. I always jerk back in. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Times that if I get past that barrier, which I think is, uh, you know, the the mind shatters, saying, "Oh Lord," you know, <laughs> and that's where I get stopped up. So again, it's a losing control thing. Uh huh. Yeah, I had a friend in 
years ago, and he was he was a weird adult from both teaching at a college, and he um just had these spontaneous out of body experiences. The time usually was very tired, right? mm-hmm. and so one time he was going to San Francisco, and as going into town on the bus, he just went out of his body and things. And the next day, he just remembered everything he'd seen. You know? but then one time he was in college, he did it and he floated over to his girlfriend's dormitory and floated through the walls. And she was, she and her roommate were dancing in their underwear. So the next day, he stupidly, he just wanted to confirm whether it happened or not. He said, were you and your roommate dancing in your underwear? And she hit him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he thought he was a peeping Tom. <laughs> but I guess but he got that, his answer. It was true. Yes, you know? He actually seen it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it won. And with this whole aspect of this, those solid hits reaffirm is you imagine. Yes. Yeah. And in all that, that reaffirmation pushes the experience. Let me ask you this. Uh, so would you say these experiences are related to dreaming? Streaming also a kind of out of body experience. Well, the 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 lucid stuff, and so so for me, yeah, they are. See, this is why I like this field. Is there's it it it's on a level playing field. It's like death, right? We all think you know. We all have our relationship with these. We all dream, yeah. Even if we don't remember it, but the experience can't really be. You know, as much as science does get in there and neuroscience is it's still like this untouchable land. It's still the badlands in a way, like death. So uh, I don't pull up to anyone with empirical knowledge regarding this stuff. Okay. That's that's where I stand because I I do, I feel like it's the badlands still. So, um, Okay, so we got all, all kind of that basic stuff. I wanted to I wanted to explore any dreams you may have brought I, since the symbolic language language and you in particular are interesting because you deal in symbols with mm-hmm. the tarot yeah. and also with your uh, your novels and stuff. It's just everything's so symbolically rich around you. Has any of that been informed by dreaming or you know how does this is there an interconnection here at all for you well two things first of all i sometimes will use the experience of a dream my my writing particularly my fiction um in fact i'm doing a novel now about a woman um it's inspired by accounts of people who turn into animals and this you know werewolves the world has a sacred calling kind of and so and also by the i i got i collect fountain pen and I sometimes written novels based upon the name inscribed on the side of the pen. It's an antique pen. I got this wonderful antique gold pen, and it had the name of R.P. Wolf. I mean, Rachel Pollock Werewolf. So I started, and I knew about this whole subject of um, werewolf cults. You know? So I'm writing a book about that, but I decided to have the character be based somewhat on me. So I include the whole thing about the dreams of nine-year-old and Artemis. That's part of it. So, that's, so I'm starting to bring some of my own experience between dreams my writing. Not not the dream experience story, but um the characters having the same dreams I have. I love that. That's that's rich too. I mean it, it I think it grounds it even deeper. What about when you're working on your different tarot decks? 
and so again, you're deeply immersed in working on something that's heavily symbolically coded. That's a symbolic language. Do you, did you in those particular periods find a shift in, in your dreamscape? Not too much. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but the thing is that the work I do sometimes is so associated with the same kinds of things that people experience in dreams. I'm experiencing them. Kind of in waking life, not as a kind of like shamanic experience, just something where the imagination goes, give it space, you know, and things that inspire me from mythology and practices around the world. So there's not that much difference in time. And so, for instance, I did a tarot deck called the Shining Tribe Tarot that I did for myself. And I decided at the very beginning it was not going to be a deck where I had a concept. I had to, I wanted to, like, you know, plan out what the cards are going to be about and plan out the symbolic image. Instead, it was going to be purely what came to me. Things that just came to me. Um, I don't remember offhand. I'm sure there were dreams, but I don't remember offhand any particular cards, the things people told me. A lot of things I saw, a lot of things um, in you know, tribal art, um, cave art, Aboriginal art, um, all kinds of influences. Statuary from China. Um, things I would just see, which would lead to something that I was just connected to. And so in that sense, it's the same kind of territory, but not using my dream. Um, and then another recent book, book called um, uh, Child Eater, is based on, has a lot of dream material in it. But again, it's not my dream, it's parents' dream. I think I just feel such a connection to the dream landscape, as you say, that I can just use it Imaginatively, I don't have to use my own. I don't have to take my own dreams and take it there, and vice versa. The stories don't have to go into my dreams. My, my stories already are. Yeah, well, especially since you you actually one of these people like myself that questions whether you died or not. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Well, that's a recent thing. I, 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 I'm a little wary of going too much into that because you, know, you could end up crazy. Um, <laughs> well, there's always, yeah, I mean, I think it's good to remain grounded, but it's yeah. wonderful to entertain uh, the concept if you can remain grounded. It's, it's so fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, it's uh, I think it's rich. And the thing, the, the thought that comes to me is that more people since the 2012 experience especially are coming round to that as a possible idea that has grit to it that, mm. that may have something because there's a certain idea of immortality anyway mm. with people who don't believe in complete annihilation after death yeah. you know that there's more to this experience to me that that question what happens if you die is so open. One of my basic attitudes is that if it was possible for us to know what happens if you die, everybody would know it. Yeah. And we wouldn't have all these competing ideas. Yep. But, you know, it would be well, like, like, you know, it's possible to go to Cleveland, so we know what Cleveland is like. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Um, but so the fact that we don't know, we don't have a clear idea what happens if you die. We have lots of people saying what they know, but they're all at least slightly different. So I think the truth of it is somewhere kind of in a sense and above or below all those different accounts that those accounts are fed by what really the real experience of death and then 
into our conscious minds, we come up with ideas, theories. Well, that's, and that's what I'm saying about the dreamscape as well. It's like death where no one really knows. There's, there's a lot of speculation, a lot of postulation, all that, but it's, it still remains a personal experience. It still remains uh, something we all have access to and do or can do at least. And, and death is that same way. There's a sacredness to it. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and even that said, in 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 your book Tarot Wisdom, I like all the little examples you give, little anecdotes here and there from your personal journey as well yeah. with certain cards. So you're living the way I'm perceiving it too, and the way the symbols are so rich in your life and your daily waking life is that you're kind of living a dream. You're kind of living in a dreamscape. Yeah, there's something of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I also, mean, you've created. You know, I, I think everybody is, but most people don't realize it. But that that sounds very arrogant because not everybody should be like me. Which I don't really. But um, but you know, I I sometimes say that you know, the first rule of magical life is pay attention. Yes. You know, and that's it. Just pay attention. You know? And then I, and then I expanded to the thing I've written about now. Find a few stories other places, um, which I call the first directive. Um, see what there is to see, hear what there is to hear, touch whatever you touch, speak the thing you So it's really all about paying attention, present, really noticing things. And if you go on a sacred journey like the journeys I've taken to places, I'll be leading, going to Greece um, in May, and it really sharpens your attention, at least it should, and you start seeing the most amazing things. That might you might have it might have happened anyway, but you don't really notice them. You notice them in a different kind of way, in a powerful way. Do you, so uh, kind of in this thread. Do you think that? Well, where where are your thoughts here with the? Yeah, I want to I want to say this. So people that don't have the amount of freedom that others do as far as choice in creating their world okay. that are that are stuck with like nine to five hard jobs and mm-hmm. stuff like that are on the rat race and in, in that more yeah. so some of us have more of a monastic experience and we've kind of lined our lives up that way however synchronistically is it and so in kind of the modern vernacular, some of these people are being called NPCs. I'm not sure if you're familiar with all that. Tell me what that is, initial stand for? Uh, non-player character. and, and, oh, and Non-clear? Non-player character. It's like a video gaming terminology. Okay, no, I don't, yeah, okay. And so it's like, and even Dolores Cannon, I think she called them, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but she called them like filler back, people. Background people. Yeah, okay. background people. Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah. So with with that said, though, and this whole idea of uh, the general public coming to more of a, that we see, that we're talking around and people in these circles are talking about is we're kind of raising the people that are on the rat race that don't seem to question it, they just go with everything. It's work, sleep, you know, repeat, work, sleep, all that. But I wonder how many of them actually feel that way. You know, 
I think that everybody has depths that don't show. Some people get the chance to show those more, more than others, you know? Yeah. I once had this theory that you could walk down any street, any city, any town, and stop anyone at random. And if you started asking them and they started telling you about their lives, about their families, their friends, you hear the most incredible stories. Yeah. Stories that would just astonish you. That's my dream really job. That. I mean, sorry, what? That's my dream job. Well, yeah, I mean, you could do it as a book. <laughs> you know, someone, you know what you know Studs Terkel was, the columnist and a writer? You would interview people about work, you know? But you could interview people about their lives, and you could do a whole book like that. It would be an amazing book, you know? You'd have to have the knack of getting people to talk to you, though. That would be the hard part, you know? There we go. I have no problem yeah, yeah. getting people to talk. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, let's I, try it. See what happens. I know? read my <laughs> first Studs Turkel book when I was 11. Really? Yeah. Was it working? No. I love that. I love that. It was working. working, yes. Incredible book. Just amazing, you know? And it really, just, it really just brings to mind, like, you know, the reality of people's lives as opposed to this dismissive fantasy that intellectual elites have about people, you know? Yeah. They're, uh, that's why they're the elite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, everyone I encounter personally that talks that is, out of that gets out of their mode and talks and usually wherever i go there's people even standing in the market line people are chatting uh i always get adept from them but when i look out into the masses or like say at the shopping at analogy again at the market you yeah. know it's you can i get bumped around people are just you're reaching for something and they'll just go right in front and stuff those kinds of experiences yeah. where i where i question some of where I question this about that whole NPC thing or the filler people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're rushing. They're always in a hurry. They're, yeah. They're not in the now. They don't seem to be living in a way. There's a certain strain of science fiction that mimics um, psychotic fantasies. And I actually went for an article about this. I called it um, Invasion of the Android Snatchers. With some, <laughs> Philip Dick's entrance from Electric Sheep and then Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which are examples of science fiction stories that mimicked psychotic fantasies. Um, but, you know, one of them is the fantasy that everybody is filler, you know? And there's wonderful science fiction stories that play with that idea. Um, Robert Heinlein wrote a story called Them, or They, maybe They, yeah. And in the story, somebody is in a mental hospital in Boston. And he's there because he has this delusion that he's discovered that he's the only real person in the world, that the world has been taken over by aliens, and they put up this fake reality to keep him convinced that he's living an ordinary life, you know? And so psychiatrist is trying to explain how absurd this is, how ridiculous this is. And, and he's kind of adamant. He's, you know, he's, he discovers by accident, he turned a corner and he saw the, like, you know, how the buildings were fake. They were, they were fake buildings. And they were put there to impress him. And so all the people on the street were fake. You know, they weren't real people. Pillars, you know? And then he's insistent. So God says, well, he said, we're not getting anywhere. Um, I'm going to send you to a specialist in New York. And then we follow the psychiatrist into his office. He picks up the phone. He says, okay, um, take down Boston, set up New York. <laughs> <laughs> so, and there's a whole bunch of science fiction stories like that. Um, the Truman Show is a lot like 
oh, the Truman Show is the great, yeah. Gnostic, great Gnostic film of all time. So it's just basically a Gnosticism, you know. It's the real, the world's not the real world. The Truman Show is your Gnosticism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I have a whole theory that there's a genre of movies. There are Philip Dick movies that Philip Dick never wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and the Truman Show and, um, and you know what's the one where the world, everyday world is fake and you know what I mean? The Matrix. Oh, the Matrix. Matrix, yeah. Those yes. movies, yeah. You know, those are big style movies. But the Truman Show is Gnosticism. There's a moment at the end where he's finally going to escape the real world, and the producer, you know, speaks him from the clouds, from the moon, actually, the fake moon. And he says, <laughs> to her, um, he says, "I am the creator of the Truman Show." <laughs> no. Yeah, so, so that means so this science fiction story is that will mimic that perception, and and that's also kind of like you know that whole thing between fantasy, dreams, um, mythology, um, psychosis is whole range overlap in all those things. Yes, yes. Well, that's the thing, and it it seems to be. I know I've noticed just looking back. It seems to be certain themes are lying around in the ethers, if you will, and uh, the creative people of the time seem to all be picking up on whatever that is that's uh, out there and then true. express yeah. it through the yeah. arts. And so, you know, what are your thoughts on that? How, it's, you know, Phil K. Dick certainly is a good example of that. Well, Dick is really so interesting because I think that, like, you know, he's most famous for, with a lot of people for his, um, his, Gnostic, his Gnostic work, you know, the exegesis, um, his later novels, um, Valis, or Valis, however it's pronounced. Yeah, I, was, yeah. well, I find that very sad because to me, his greatness is in that the kind of like, not exactly a borderland, but that's like a you know, knife edge between the closest fantasy. You know, and I felt like in some of that later stuff, he fell over the edge into believing that his inspiration for genuine and some of his greatest books it's it's really always like exploring that that edge you know um the android dream of electric chief is a great master um and it's it's terrifying it's, it's a book about hell basically mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's magnificent the, you know? the uh yeah absolutely i didn't mean to interrupt you i'm so sorry but uh sure. i was going to say that i think it's next week is the day that it's the first day in blade runner in the movie Oh, really? <laughs> That's amazing, yeah. yeah. And yeah, the movie's totally different from the book. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, uh, which yeah. is so common, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. You know, Dick was offered a million dollars to rewrite the book, have the plot of the movie, and he turned it down. I just give him immense credit for that, you know? He resist that temptation. He wanted yeah. his book to stand as the book he wrote and not, you know, not not a movie version, not a book of the, of the movie. No, that's real credibility. They made character. they made another movie uh, from Radio Free Albemuth and put some of. But the, I don't know that. Yeah, some yeah. of the Valis stuff is in there. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a moment in Valis. I can take a moment to talk about that. That's okay. Oh yeah, there's, of course. Absolutely. There's a moment that is so sad because in Valis, what happens is there's this. You know, the, the narrator, I guess it's called Dick, and then this horse lover fat, who's this friend of his, you know the name, you know, and then 
At a certain point in the book, he becomes sane. And he realizes the horse lover fat is rejection. Because it's a literal translation of Philip Dick. Horse, uh, Philip is, I guess, Greek for horse lover, and Dick is German for fat. Uh, and so then he becomes integrated. So this rejected self becomes integrated into the conscious self. You know? And then he's pursuing things. I forget what happened. At a certain point, he says, he says, he writes, horse lover fat came over today. And I thought it was one of the saddest things I'd ever read. You know, he lost it. For a while, he was able to, you know, pull it together and see things through perspective, and then he lost it again, you know? And to me, that's the most, to me, that's the thing in the book that's the most powerful, not the sort of um, religious revelation. I had always assumed that that guy was a figment of the narrator's imagination. Well, it's because the narrator doesn't know it until he has a lucid moment, and he realizes <laughs> And he kind of takes him back into himself, and then he, then he, then he, then works up with that, becomes another, comes out again. And he stops knowing. He stops knowing that it's him. Yeah, I, I don't, rem- I, I have to read it again. It's been so long. The, the whole idea of that, uh, the world's filled with projections and whatnot is kind of yeah, solipsistic yeah. in a way. Exactly. Very solipsistic, yeah. You know, did you know that Mark Twain wrote a famous solipsistic book? No, I'm sorry. It's called, the, Which it's called the Mysterious Stranger. Yeah. I think it was published, but it was published censored to make it seem not as weird. Shocking, isn't it? At the, yeah, really. And at the end of it, the narrator, I've never read it. I don't know why, but at the end of it, the narrator discovers he's the only person in the universe. And everything he thinks is the world is just an extension of him. Hmm. And so, I mean, this is, you know, Mark Twain is thought of as realistic and that's satirical, but, you know, not particularly fantastic and strange or weird and you know there he was writing this the most solipsistic book ever written except maybe for Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it called <laughs> the mysterious stranger i just want to i have like, a synchronicity with that if somebody had cool. just mentioned that book i don't even know like this within this week oh that's wonderful i love that yeah, it's, it's so random i love why well, i love synchronicity yeah because it's just great yeah. Well, especially if something kind of, this is super random because it's way out of print. It's, you know, it's, it's just, it really random. <laughs> so what, with it kind of in the subject, if we can stay astray here with this, uh, because this all ties in, I mean, our whole theme of our show is really consciousness, where it's going and all that, all that, all this stuff plays into our show. And so with the idea of sci-fi writers in particular, you know, down to yourself, there seems to be something that I have noticed, and I think everyone notices, is that especially the deeper into current times we get, there's like this kind of foreshadowing effect with great sci-fi. Hmm. Well, I mean, but- it's not not the usual sense that people think. People think science fiction is about predicting technology or predicting, you know, culture and stuff. But it's it's not really because it's always at the moment that it's written, you know. So it's a projection. But in doing that, you're projecting into stuff that's real, and so you're going to discover that there are things, you know, in the world that come out of or reflect to some story somebody's written, even though they might not have noticed, they might not have meant it at the time to be that way. No, it's kind of really fascinating. If you buy into the whole creative, uh, co-creative, you know, consciousness uh, paradigm, then 
you could say one could argue that science fiction creates reality. Well, yes, that's true too. Yes, but you know, I went to this wonderful book some years ago, quite a while ago now. But whatever happens to the future, and it was a book about Sunday supplement uh, predictions of what was what the world was going to be like, you know, in say the 1970s, back in the 1950s, you know, and so the flying cars and the you know the helipads and the private jetpacks and the, all those kind of things that never happened. So, you know, science fiction has predicted loads of, you know, kind of mechanical things that never came true. But some of those so, things, Rachel, are now, there's flying, there's jetpacks now. There's one that was debuted in France in front of the president in, and oh, he really hasn't perfected cool. it, but there's a video yeah. of him riding it around. It's super cool. Right, but, but it's you know, not it's ubiquitous. It took so long to do, though, you know? Right. But yeah, I mean, look how long it took, though, you know? We were supposed to have those in the 70s. <laughs> I know, but, but see, that's the weird thing about punk. This yeah. just adds to my feeling that the whole world is fake. Uh-huh, yeah. Because, I <laughs> yes. mean, seriously, technology has not really improved since the moon landings, if they even happened. But there's well, still the one prediction student rockets in the air. Sorry, go ahead. I'll say the one prediction that has come true and this is Dick Tracy's um, radio wristwatch. It's now called the iWatch. <laughs> <laughs> so finally that happened, you know? <laughs> what about the surveillance state? There are cameras everywhere now. I know, yeah. I mean, that's, that's everything, classic. Everything we say is being recorded somewhere. Yeah. And, but you know, people think that people are listening with earphones, of course they're not, it's just trigger words. You say certain words that will cause someone to look at it. Someone to, Know, this is recording. That's exactly how I participate in the show. <laughs> <laughs> you're, so you're hoping, Jerry, that you'll say something that the NSA will listen to and then they will be changed. No, I listen for trigger words from you or Nate from oh, the guest. Oh, oh, okay. I see. Uh, okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm running the show. I'm doing chats. I'm keeping notes and everything. It's hard to. I'm a guy. I have external plumbing, you know, one single <laughs> task at a time. <laughs> But I love it when you jump in, Gary, especially on these subjects, because this is, you're so well-versed here in territory. And don't get me wrong. It's something I'm not listening. I'm just not listening closely. Yeah. You're I mean, doing your job. Okay. And you, yeah, you do what you need to do, really, you know? <laughs> so with all this, though, let's, you know, this is, this is one of the, uh, this is the fodder that we like here. I, I want to kind of clear out the idea of dreams with you. What, so what do you think the major, and I know you come from a heavily uh, psychological background that you're really versed in those uh, ideas. So what do you think the function of dreaming is? Gosh, what a, you know, I think it's to, and there's certainly some functions of dreaming. It could be there are different functions. There's a simple function, which is to work out anxieties and work out tension. And often you work it out by experiencing it in a bad way. <laughs> so it comes out in your dream rather than your daily life. But sometimes you work it out by experiencing alternative, a happy dream, in which the things are bothering you resolve. The, the tension ones are more likely. That's just one level. Another level is, is to you know, open the imagination to things beyond your physical perception. So to be able to create a world that's not just picking up the sense of perception. I think that's significant. 
Another level is, because it's the same level as fairy tales and mythology, in which like everything works in a kind of magical way to experience magic. I don't think there's just one function. I think there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah. And then I, I definitely. Yeah, and then there's, of course, prophecy. You know, prophetic dreams. Clairvoyant yes. Dreams. You know that. Um, That's where I wanted to go next. In the, in the two weeks or so before 9-11, people were having dreams about it all over the world. And people, and tower readers reported afterwards that the tower, which shows a picture of a tower crumbling on fire, um, was coming up in readings they did for everybody. And they could tell it wasn't those individual people. But of course, the problem is we have no way to correlate these things. So there's no way to know what happened. You know? Um, I do know a woman, by the way, who woke up from a dream one night. Uh, she was a, a psychic. Pretty good one. City. And she woke her husband and she said to him, terrorists are going to hijack airplanes and fly them into buildings. Wow. And she got up and wrote it down an email sent it to a friend of hers. Oh. So there is a record. But, you know, of course, if she had gone to the FBI and told them this, they had this dream, they would have said she was not and sent her away, right? Yeah. And then, after it happened, if they remembered that she'd been there, they would have arrested her and accused her of being, you know, ties to the terrorists. Because there's no framework to understand the relationship between prophetic statements of what's going to happen. Um, you know, a friend of mine years ago had this idea that there should be a national um, agency that correlates psychic dream, then you could see what's come, what comes through, what doesn't come through. But you can also get a sense of what, what's being predicted. So if enough people saw images of falling towers, the towers attacked by airplane, that'd be something to look out for. You know? That would be like a wisdom of the crowd, uh, meta, yeah. a meta wisdom of the crowd kind of view. That would be cool. Very and, I, cool. and in my novel, The Question of Fire, I borrowed my friend's idea, but I changed not to a psychic dream, people's dreams the contents of their dream. And I, I created this government agency called Laura, National O'Neill Registration Agency. And so you would go to you would go to Nora, you would tell them your dream, write it out for them, they would feed it to their computer. And the computer would give you all the matches of people all over the world who had the same images or events in the dream. And you could see what the energy was that was going on, even if you couldn't really understand what it was, you would feel this connection to other people who had it. That is my dream. That's a dream of mine. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'd love to see that manifest. Yeah. And in my book, is in the novel, of course, she's had a dream, the main character. Um, and she's, she knows there's something really up about it. It's, it's very disturbing to her. She has feel there's this like, you know, divine energy focused on her. She doesn't like it. So she goes to Nora to have the dream analyzed. And they come back and they say, this is not possible. It must be some kind of joke. Said, what? There were no correlation. Said, what? You know, nobody in the world dreamed anything like this on that night. <laughs> <laughs> and so now she knows she's really in trouble. You know? <laughs> and, then, and, then she, and then she gets pregnant, which is you know, really horrifying to her because she knows that you know, she's being used by a divine agency to bring a divine child into the world. She's really furious. Which one of your books is this? Unquenchable Fire. That whole book is like a dream, by the way. Uh-huh. The whole book is written in a certain sense like a dream. Uh-huh. You know? Lister. Or a group, a group of interlaced dreams. Okay, so, so with all that, what about 
the idea. So do you experience, have you experienced deja vu? And how do you, how do you parse that out in your intellect as to what's happening? What's going on there? You know, there was a period in my life and I was for a number of years, but not all the time. But I would sometimes experience what I called second or third level deja vu. This is a deja vu. It had deja vu about something. <laughs> and, but I don't. I never really, you know, found out about what it was. I know that the neuroscientists, people, for what they're worth, um, say <laughs> exactly, it's a kind of brain circuitry thing. Yeah, the brain is experiencing an event as if it's memory, so you know it's not a memory, you know, and so there's that confusion. So I don't know. I, other than that, I, I don't have an answer. But you know, it was a very strange thing to experience that. You know, then I would experience having deja vu, but having had deja vu about something. <laughs> That's like well, third level deja vu. <laughs> I love that though. It is like wrapped within. It's like I know thing. Yeah, the Russian doll thing. You know? Yes, absolutely. Well, what do you so? Have you with your deja vu's at all? Have you ever been able to? pinpoint an origin point a lot of time like for me i can pinpoint them to dreams actually i've never done that i never it's never occurred to me i think that you know. and they all do seem to be really mundane really that's interesting yeah you know like walking into a room i mean it's always something so oh you're right yes yeah yeah something non-significant yeah, yeah. yeah something not significant yeah which which i think actually for me adds to the mystique of it <laughs> because yeah, you're, I like that. I like that idea. That's, Instead of like um, having a deja vu when I have a. <laughs> but that's like, actually really. What about walking in? It's actually, an interesting idea. You know that the ordinariness of it is actually makes it more compelling, more mysterious. Yes, yes. That seems like something Philip Dick would write about somehow. Yes, you know, absolutely. But then, but then it would open up, to, you know, very strange things beyond uh, the ordinary level. But that would be how it begin. Yeah, that would be the entry point. For sure. Yeah, yeah. That's wild. <laughs> um, well, okay. I, I want to get into death for a minute now. Let's <laughs> go <laughs> Pluto all the way. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so you had mentioned, and you know, anyone that may be joining us right now, Rachel Guardian question, you know, if she had died during experience, had the dream. Die. And so, of course, showed. Uh, <laughs> so, what you, so, and and this is this is kind of like that land of just allow ourselves the freedom to explore it, which is my everyday life anyway. Uh, what proves to us, what proves to you, what makes you believe that you didn't actually die? What, what do you, what, how do you qualify that you're actually living? By the fact that I enjoy the world a lot. You know, I enjoy the nature and people and reading and food. And to me, those are experiences of life, you know? So, okay, I guess we should back up. What, so, right, with that as a qualifier, how do you, perceived yet what's the idea of death then and the said, unfortunately i said i don't know i mean i, I understand all possibilities i'm fascinated by it 
I'm fascinated by the idea of death, probably since I was 15. <laughs> um, probably before that, though. You know, I mean, stories about the land of the dead, it comes up over and over again in my writing, the land of the dead, as the place of ultimate, kind of like ultimate mythical power. Actually, Unquenchable Fire, there's the, I said it was, the whole book's like a dream. So there's this moment in the book, I won't give the whole background, but my, my heroine is a great crisis. Going through this thing. Um, and she's pregnant, as they said, she's from a dream. Very disturbed about this. And then, um, and then she goes in the street and she meets, and she's in New York City and she's had this very painful encounter with her ex husband going back to her mother's house. It becomes like a journey through the dream world and the land of the dead, but the dream world. And kids keep coming up to her first one, then two, then a whole bunch of kids. And they go, Miss, Miss, where do babies come from? And she says, I don't know. She doesn't know where they come from. Her, pregnant from a dream. And, and then she meets this man who's um, selling chocolate uh, chip cookies and ice cream sandwiches on the street, you know, on a street vendor. And she sees him. She recognizes he's a, um, um, a blessed being. He's like an angel, you know, mm-hmm. and sent to her. And she says, please, please, you know, why do we, there's so much suffering. Why is there so much suffering? And he says to her, only two things exist in the world, ecstasy and suffering. And we choose suffering because ecstasy is too frightening. Um, and, then, and then she leaves. <laughs> and then she goes back to her mother's house. She goes to her room. And she goes to her mother's house. Her mother was strange saying weird stuff to her. And she realized her mother was asleep and was dreaming. And is speaking from a dream. So she's not really scared. She goes upstairs. And she looks, under the, looks at her room. The door is closed. But light is beaming out from under it, and she's frightened. And she's about to open it, and she knows suddenly that they, the heavens, the third world is going to show her um, where babies come from. And she looks, she opens the door and sees this like this great like sea. It's like a dark sea with flashes of light in it. And there's these uh, faces talking to each other. And, you know, children, babies rising up out of it. And she realizes it's the land of the dead. And babies come from the land of the dead. And then she sees, and the, the people are telling each other stories. She realizes the whole book is about stories. That stories come from the land of the dead. Everything comes from the land of the dead. And she says, no, no, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. And she realizes <laughs> it's true. That everything comes, you know, I had no idea what I was writing there. This is what just came to me. I mean, I was in a trance I never in a trance when I write. But I write in a way that, it's not being in a trance because you're very conscious. But things are just coming to you. You're not planning what it's going to be. You know? The whole book was written that way. I thought the whole book was like a dream. Um, and so, but, so that was that moment that, you know, everything comes from the land of the dead. But what that actually means, I can't tell you. you know? That was the inspiration. That was the moment that happened. And beyond that, I don't know. I couldn't outline it for you. I couldn't give you an exegesis of it, you know, an intellectual analysis of it. That's what it is, you know? When is that the only book that came to you kind of this way? Well, most of my novels and even a lot of my tarot writing have some of that. That book was a sustained thing. But like I said, it was not written in any kind of trance or anything like that. Um, it wasn't channel writing in any way. It was all very conscious work. But the sources of the engine of it was always these times of like powerful experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, 
I view, I, I try to get into that state a lot. I try to function from that state and, and I call it and the way I term it, the way I term it definitely now is, you know, high state of lucidity. That's what trans kind of really I reminds guess so. me. I guess, that, I guess that's my version of lucidity when I write those kinds of stories. Yeah. Where you're just open and there's like a, there's kind of a, I don't know. I don't know. You know, you, you know when you know when the muse is there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's through your job to make it make it come out good. You know, make it come out well. Do version of it, but nevertheless, you know when you know exactly. I like that. I, so you said during during that last little book, I, I it sparked a question I have. What are your ideas on? And this ties into the act. Uh, angels and demons. What, what's going on there? I think that they are cultural projections of something that is um, universal, but it's always every culture is channeled into something that people can comprehend. So a lot of people today say, you know, they talk about aliens. They talk about them exactly the way people talk about angels and demons. They say, well, you know, when people's angels and demons are really seeing aliens, they didn't understand it. But I feel we see aliens, we're not understanding it either. Nobody understands it. It's always, every culture has its own version of that same thing. Yeah, it's been an observation. And same with fairies. What, Jerry? I was just going to say, have uh, has Rachel writ read any of Joshua Kutchin's material? No. Yeah, okay. He's an author who's exploring that exact subject. Oh, really? Wow. The first Maybe book of his think. was called... Yeah, I think you'll Trojan, enjoy him, Rachel. Trojan Feast. What's his name? Joshua? Joshua Cutchin. C-U-T-H-T-C-H, rather, I-N. I'll send you all his info. Don't worry. You know, yeah, thank you. Yeah, sure. wow. Yeah, very interesting subject, yeah. Um, it's He's, the same as, like, you know, yeah, the people always have their own views of death. It's always filtered through their cultural context. And yet, it also is very real, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's an experience. And, and because it feels so real, people have to believe that their version is still real. Who they are we to say that it's not real? Oh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly true. Yeah. Um, I you know. Like, to me, they definitely are real. But it's just that they're not real in the sense that everybody would have to see the same thing. Yeah, because the, we, we, we already know that that's not the case, that you can have three yeah. people standing. Uh, who was yeah. it? Soraya Azkath from the Where Did the Road Go podcast. Yeah. He's told the story about where he and two of his friends were out in the woods and all three of them had a different experience with the same thing. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. One guy didn't see it. One guy saw something, but he wasn't sure. And Soraya saw, you know, I know exactly what I saw. You know, the parable of the elephant and the blind, oh, yeah. blind scholars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, that's, that's a great story. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's a classic, and yeah. it's, it really does describe everything. I mean, you know, some people read that story, in case listeners don't know what we're talking about, you know, three blind professors go to examine an elephant, and one person touches the leg, and an elephant is like a tree trunk, and someone else touches, you know, the size, an elephant is like a barn, someone else touches the trunk, an elephant is like a snake. <laughs> um, but um, they're, they're usually interpreted as, you know, the limitations of scholars, that they're blind to reality, they just have intellectual ideas. But in a much, much more basic way, it's, it's the limitations of any perception. Like, you know, you're talking about the people in the woods. 
all the same place, the same thing happened, they all experienced something different. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's fascinating. That's why we do this show. Find out, you yeah, know, absolutely. just to well, hear stories because, you know, we're not going to figure it out, but as long as we can gather data and yeah. keep thinking about it. Yeah. And, you know, the more possible this you open with other people's experiences, I think the better off we are. So the whole tendency towards isolating kind of fundamentalism, I mean, it's, you know, it's fundamentalists do not have to be, the version we have in the public world about fundamentalism is kind of very ugly parody. You know, there are some wonderfully open people who just have a fundamentalist approach to things. But the other people, the people who only, only their version of things feel, nobody else has to be wrong, sinful, evil, Oh, like the that's, left? That's really, I mean, that's just a <laughs> terrible thing because it means that you, know, you, can't, you, can't, you can't learn from anyone. You know? I did want to ask about Doom Patrol. Sure. You, you worked on that. Um, I, I didn't read about your involvement in it, so did you, you came in the middle, right? You didn't start it or oh, create it, it. No, Doom Patrol was, um, came in 1963. Oh, there you go. It was actually the same exact time as the X-Men. It might have been the same month. Two different companies yeah. and almost the same exact idea. But the X Men, unfortunately, for Doomful, well, of course, the X Men, the X Men got his genius early on, many Claremont, who took it from a sort of like, you know, kind of imitation of the Fantastic Four gotcha. uh, into this amazing, amazing work. You know? um, Doom Patrol kind of went from various incarnations, but it was always weird. The thing about it, it was like Doom Patrol is a home for weird heroes, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then a man named, um, I got my mind, mind. Oh, wow. I can look it up. Oh, it's totally blind. He's a person I revere as a writer. <laughs> anyway, he took over Room Patrol in the, um, I guess, 80s. You know? And he made it this real thing. Oh, his name will come. To <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Like, I really. Paul, Paul Krupperberg? No, later. later maybe earlier. Steve yeah. Lytle? Nope. <laughs> Look, yeah. Oh, Grant oh, Morrison. Grant Morrison, exactly. Oh, yeah. God, so ridiculous, you know? I'm thinking Mind. 60s, that's why. Mind blip, yeah. Yeah, Grant's uh, awesome. So, so Grant Morrison, you know, he was facing, it was a challenge. So, um, Michael Moore, not Michael, Alan Moore. Yeah, my mind is Yeah, dying. Alan Moore. Alan Moore wrote Watchmen, Masterpiece. Right. You know? And then people were saying, well, now that Alan Moore has written Watchmen, there's nothing else anyone could possibly say about superhero team. <laughs> and so Grant Morrison took that to challenge. Came up with wonderful, surreal, strange, wild comic that I just loved, you know. And I got the great privilege of taking it over after Grant Morrison left. Right. I, you know, I think he didn't want anyone to do it. I think I had the sense I never got to talk to him. Mm -hmm. um, I had the sense that he really, but he should have ended when he left because yeah. he did such a perfect job. But I got to take him that yeah, my own version is a similar kind of real wild you know strange cool. dreamlike you know things bala and, and yes you know, fantasies and mm -hmm. you know, sexual um wildness and stuff like this sexual freedom well, yeah uh, did, uh, did any of your stories make it into the tv show or did you even see the tv show no because i don't I, you can only see it if you go to dcu mm -hmm. in which you have to pay i think 75 dollars and i don't want you know I yeah. would. I don't want to do that. You know, all I wanted to see was the Doom Patrol show. 
This is the trailer looks great, you know. I'm sure you could find a stream somewhere online that has um, it. I don't think any of my characters in there. Mostly it was the old original characters. Mm -hmm. There were one or two of Grant Morrison's characters. That was kind of good. Okay. Um, Very cool. There's been a new incarnation of it. Gerard Wade has been doing it. Mm -hmm. And I love what he's doing. He's, he's brought it back to the same kind of thing that Grant and I did now. And he's he got to both of us and get our input. I like that. So that's going to be great. That yeah, that's volume six. Which one were your which ones were your characters? Oh, there some, I was I inherited certain characters and invented a few others. So the characters, there was I think, you know, one character, two characters left in the original nineteen sixty comic. One was Chief, um, who was the leader. Yep, he's um, still, he's in the show. Yeah, oh, he's of course, of course he's in. There was Robot Man, who yep. was a Cliff. Um, Cliff is um, he was in a car crash. Oh, left him his brain, so chief <laughs> the robot body. Um, so those two were there. And then most of the others were gone. Um, Grant Morris ended them one way or another. And, and the ones he introduced, he didn't want other people, one in particular. But he, one character he did, I, I could do, which is a character called um, Dorothy, was a girl. And she was very ugly in conventional terms. That's not a value judgment. Mm -hmm. judgment. And so she isolated. And no one liked her, so she had imaginary friends. But her imaginary friends all had superpowers of their own. Each one had its own superpower, and they could take and, over. Yeah, and they she would just call on them to mm -hmm. situations where they would need it. And um, Grant invented this, you know, mm -hmm. and he hinted it's very subtle. But he hinted one of the issues that they were connected to menstruation or getting a period. <laughs> and since a lot of my themes were sexual outlaws and sexual. Um, you know, people who are on the outcasts and claiming who they were and stuff like this. Um, so I, I made that more explicit. Um, and that was became an issue, you know. In fact, there was one issue. I, I, I had a lot of resistance fans. <clears throat> I think it was partly because of the woman doing it. So I had a kind of feminist mm. kind of thing, and they didn't like that. Uh, but at one point, I had this issue in which the Doom Patrol had to get together to deal with this menstrual flood that's about to engulf the town. And it's got cars in it and phone booths and trees. <laughs> anyway, and so a lot, some of these fans wrote in and they were outraged. They said that I was, you know, I think they said they were forcing feminism down their throats, which is a bit too vivid an image considering the storyline. I bet those are the guys who hated Captain Marvel, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But, um, but but they also that, so that was and I introduced and then my editor said because there was a famous negative man this guy in bandages he said it has to be someone people in bandages you know we had this couple named George and Marion who were from an old TV show called Topper Topper Cary Grant mm -hmm. um, and so they were they were energy beings contained in bandages because without the bandages they just would not exist you know and they were this they lived life to the fullest they were always you know drinking cocktails or how they did it we know no 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 and they love doing things you know and they're very sexy um and then at one point they're going into town and dorothy who still feels that no one's gonna like her and cliff who feels like a total freak because he's a robot you know mm -hmm. they say to her how can you do it he says what how, how they say to them you know how can you go into in the public and have people stare at you right. like that you know who could you like you're a horrible freak and they say, well, we think we have two choices. One is to stay home and hide in the house forever. And the other is to go out and have a good time. 
<laughs> even if the price is to be hard <laughs> at, you know. So the other, those are left thinking about this. And then they go into town, and meanwhile in town we encounter two things. We encounter this villain named Codpiece. Mm. Now I don't know if you know what a codpiece is. I do. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's something on on a man's groin. Mm -hmm. it look impressive. It's like an external uh, cup, but it's yeah, fashionable. But it's, it's, and also it's big. So it's it dandy is what it yeah. is. So, so anyway, so, so Codpiece um, was someone who felt dissed by girls in high school, and he feels that women think his penis is too small. And so he's, he's now, you know, sort of reviving him. Um, Gerard actually suggested having me do an issue, and I sort of reviving Codpiece as a leader of the insult movement. You know, like <laughs> women are forcing him to be celibate, you know? Anyway, because that's like who he was, you know. So he now has built this canon as a codpiece, you know. And the thing is, I was satirizing old comic book, particularly Green Arrow from the 1950s yep. or so, in which he had these ridiculous weapons, this tiny little quiver on his back. You know, there was a rocket, there was a punching bag arrow. I mean, you know, this tiny little thing. <laughs> so my idea is codpiece would have all these, these cannons, the cannons, you know. It was codpiece, right? So, um, so meanwhile, I also introduced him to the story. One of the characters became a main character who was um, this transgender, at that time, was transsexual lesbian character. Coagula. Yeah, Coagula. Coagula was like a joke name. That was her. She never used that name. She's just mm, Kate. Right. You know? But that was the name she gave. She went to the Justice League to try to become a member. Mm -hmm. And we see her in this ridiculous costume. And so I even made up a name for myself, Coagula, because she has these <laughs> alchemical powers. Yeah. She slept with the bandaged guy from. Grants run, mm. <laughs> and she got all chemical powers. <laughs> Sweet. So, so the left hand could dissolve, right hand could coagulate. Salve coagula, <laughs> famous alchemical motto. Anyway, so um, she ends up fighting codpiece. So she dissolves the codpiece with one hand and coagulates with the other, and then she gets invited to join the syndicate. So people have been interviewing me about this recently because it was like the first transgender hero, you know, mm -hmm. and they said, did you get a lot of you know problems with DC? And and I know the fans, you know, I said, well, actually, no, really, they focus on copies. DC, well, my editor loved it, you know, but he wasn't sure if we'd get away with doing it. And so the cover was going to be this great, it was going to be like a semi-photographic cover of these two women looking in amazement and adoration at codpieces codpieces <laughs> <laughs> like oh my god you know <laughs> and so <laughs> and um and so dc said that we could do it but it couldn't be as long <laughs> it couldn't be as big um, and then then the reaction to some of the fans was just amazing you know um, only a few i have to say most fans were great but you know, several people wrote several guys wrote and they said I was attacking them oh, personally. Dear. I was attacking fans as sexually inadequate. Oh my God. Isn't that bizarre? You know, is. everything is bizarre right now. I know. So, um, and then just you know, and then Kate became this great figure because she accepted who she was. And she, you know, she went through all the stuff that everybody else was afraid to go through about their bodies and about sexuality. So that you know, that's what it was about. It was about strangeness, sexuality. And I had a lot of esoteric stuff, the Kabbalistic story. The famous rabbi Isaac Gloria was a character. Actually, um, and so there was a lot of that kind of material. I developed some stuff from what Grant had done, took it my own direction. I had a great time doing it. We did it for two years, and it ended. Um, it 
PC didn't feel it was selling enough copies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been several versions since then. And I recently someone told me that um, every version actually sold less than my version. Oh, wow. even, though there were, even though one or two famous people writing it or mm-hmm. drawing it, you know? Well, you'll be happy to I, know that uh, Cliff and the energy being mommy guy and mm-hmm. uh, Jane, yeah, Larry, Larry Trainer, yeah. Larry Trainer, right? Yeah, he's in the new in the show, and I know I saw that. I, I and I think Dorothy might be in the show too, if I recall. I'm yeah, sure. her name Crazy is Jane. Jane. Crazy Jane is, I believe, too. That's her name. That was, that, that was Grant's great creation, Crazy Jane, the, the multiple personality woman. Yeah, right. Well, that sounds a lot like the whole the one who had the different personalities with powers. Like yes, yeah. No, well, Dorothy had imaginary friends with powers. Mm. It's not the same thing. Jane could be different people. Okay. okay. And you explain its own superpower. Um, and I know that Grant had the idea she had like the thing, sixty-four different characters. There are, yeah. The, and, but he only ever did a few of them, I think. You know, in terms of I think the show's shown about ten. One's really powerful. Yeah, I, you know, I hate spending all that money, but it's almost worth it to be able to see them now. Like I said, I'm sure you can find it for free somewhere online. Maybe I should try to see a that. Google now. search, yeah. Because I really, I don't want to see the other stuff, but I just want to see that. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you. So, yeah. All right. Well, very good. Thanks. Thanks a lot. That's real interesting. I, I love the the comics and the show, so it's very cool mm-hmm. to talk about it. We're going to yeah. be doing um, like a, an esoteric comics show. Uh, oh wow! In December with a guy named Eric Miller. It sounds familiar. I don't know. He's an author. Uh, artist, illustrator, and author out in uh-huh. Seattle. But uh, he's he's done a lot of research in like Jack Kirby and oh, Stanley so and all that. Wow. Yeah. So, Jack Kirby's one of my gods, you know. It's, yeah. That's that's also that work, you know, the new gods thing that he did, you mm-hmm. know, when mm-hmm. he left DC. It's incredible because that really is like dream, you know. There's stuff in there that's pure dream material. Absolutely. Um, and but consciously. You know, there's, there's one storyline, I won't do the whole thing, that, you know, pretty much time, but in which basically one of this group of heroes called the Fairbairn people get captured by Darkseid, the great enemy, mm-hmm. and, um, and are taken to a concentration camp to try to get information from them. Then the next issue, it turns out the concentration camp is basically Discland. And he calls it Happy Land, you know? And they're imprisoned and being tortured. And you see all these people looking at them and happy and laughing and having a great time. They help us, help us, you know, let us out. Um, and because those people don't see what they're experiencing. Right. And you just know that Kirby went to Disneyland when he moved to California, moved to LA. He went to Disneyland and he had like a nightmare. He had like, you know, a <laughs> terror there, you know? Right. Suppose all these people were actually in cages and would be tortured. You know, they just look like they were having a good time. Yeah. There's actually uh, like, a, I think it was like a creepy pasta type of story about people being locked in the mascot suits. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's kind of similar. It's not the same thing. Anyway, I'll shut up yeah. about comics, and this is going to be that. So. One, one more, because this, again, it's very much of a dream thing. Or no, I love thing. this. Oh, okay. So, um, he did a comic called Mr. Miracle, which is about his skate artist. Mm. Wonderful comic. And at one point, Mr. Miracle was challenged someone with a corporation. And the guy says something like, um, I will um, do what you wish leave without using any of your power, any of your tricks. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is you know? And then there was like the top floor or something. And then the, the villain pumps paranoid gas into the air, 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 air
everyone in the building becomes paranoid. <laughs> you know? And so everyone where he goes is being attacked and people are trying to kill him, you know, because <laughs> they think he's a monster. You know? Right. He's hell. And so, you, again, you know, like he'd gone to DC Comics at that point, his friend, high office building in Manhattan. I got to go there. I liked it. Uh, and you can just imagine he had this, what if all these people became paranoid, schizophrenic, you know, having like horrible nightmares, and I was the person as you. And how, would I, how, would I, how would I get out? You know, so, so all that stuff is, you know, his own dreams, his own like impulses, fantasies, you know, and the, the cosmic material in it, staggering. Uh, I want to check that out. Yeah. I should be those. This stuff all plays into the stuff we talk about here. Comics and graphic novels, especially when we're talking about powers and all that. This is all stuff that is right in the dream landscape. Yeah. yeah. And it it's just completely congruent for me. Yeah. No, it's just you know, the type of stuff I've loved all my life. And you know, it's so funny because like I said talking earlier that I don't, most of my dreams are not particularly, you know, fantastic of the worldly. They, they tend to be more daily life kind of thing. the same way. Now, but at the same time, my actual reading and my writing is more yes. like that. Yes. The way sometimes the dreams are. You know? Yeah, that's what I'm that's what I was saying. And maybe that's, so maybe that's the, you know, people say our dreams compensate the part that's in our lives. Yes. So I'm, what I'm missing maybe is a conventional, boring daily life, you know? That's what I was thinking earlier. So my, my dreams give me that. <laughs> Doesn't suck. Well, it right. It's that big. It's the big, the balancing scales and what I got. I got how you live your life is speaking. Yeah, I mean, I'm being silly because you know my daily life is more than anybody else. <laughs> but yeah, but still, I, mean, I, I can I concern myself. You know, I concern myself in my life and in my work. The things where I energy. That a lot of people don't, and so the compensation is more down to earth. What uh, what sun sign are you, Leo? Do you know your? I am assuming you Leo, know your chart. So Leo sun sign, rising sign Leo, um, Mercury oh. Leo, and Pluto Leo. Oh my! And my moon is Sagittarius, so it's fire, fire, fire. <laughs> I'm a fire and earth chart. That's a lot of Leo. I have no earth at all. <laughs> No earth at all on my chart, none. Um, oh, and that's why, that's one reason why I really try to ground what I do. Yeah. I don't like my work to be wispy. I don't like it to be un concrete. I like to make everything, you know, the dream energy concretized into real things you can really get. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Where's your Pluto? It's Leo. Yeah. Everyone my age is Pluto. That's not a surprise. Oh, yeah, right. You're Jen. Um, yeah. Your generation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was such a long time. Yeah, yeah, it was generational. Also, almost everything in my chart is on the left side of the chart. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which is, I guess, the intuitive side, the dream side. Like yeah, yeah. yeah and is it evenly dispersed on the left side? Like no, it's mostly it's on the top, in the top half. Okay, so oh, well, that makes sense. A lot of it's, and also I have almost no aspect. I don't really? Have, I don't have squares, I don't have trines. The only aspects I have are conjunctions. Oh, and you know, someone told nice. me. Charles's friend told me once that if she saw that chart and didn't know who the person was. I think it was someone rather simple. 
Hmm. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe a bit backwards mentally, you know. <laughs> you know, I have no fire in my chart. Really? How yeah. wild. Yeah. So what do you think that does? How, how, do you, how do you balance that in your life? I don't think I do. No? Don't seek fire? No, not really. I'm uh, yeah. pretty placated. Yeah. In life generally, like, yeah. Because I, like I said, I, I try to ground everything. You know, yeah. Your part. yeah I, I've never really thought about that. but It's a good thing to bond. Uh -huh. It would totally explain <laughs> my lack of excitement for things. <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. Bad, <laughs> fire. Uh, right. Oh, man, I can't match well, me. With I got one question from the audience, from an audience member. Okay. Um, he wanted to know if you've been influenced by any other artists who've championed the imagination and an imaginal point of view. And he offered Gosh. Kathleen Rain, Owen Barfield, Arthur Verslewis, and, and Orgasm. I know Kathleen Rain's work. Okay. But see, their work, they championed the imagination to a large extent in scholarly work, okay. which is really, really valuable and important, you know? Um, and also, you know, Sufi writing sometimes is very much about the imagination. Mm -hmm. But I, I try to do it in my, you know, directly in my fiction and my stories. And also in my tarot writing, mm -hmm. you know. But yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely look for writers at that theme, you know. Okay. Um, Peter Lamborn Wilson is one of my favorite writers and a good friend of mine, happily. And a lot of his work is about the power of imagination. Very scholarly work. I call him Atlas Scholar, the term I made up for him. <laughs> <laughs> how oh. has, so I know the Kabbalah and stuff like that, how has like magical thought made your life's work? I actually have a certain, rebellion is too strong a word, but I'm not drawn to it. It's too intellectual to me. That, that's know? hilarious. Yeah, magical esoteric theory <laughs> is too constructed. It's too diagrammatic. I, to me, I always prefer things, this is the dream thing, kind of things that are living, they're alive, they're changing, they're fresh every time. I love the tarot because you shuffle it. Yes. And it's a whole new thing every single time. Yeah. Whereas in the, some of the magical traditions, they fight vociferously on what is the correct placing of the cards. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, so that you can't shuffle them. Because then you would, would break down. It has to be exactly right. Um, you know, I find, I find a lot of that stuff to me is just, way intellectual. I, I respect for it. And also I know that people have done some very powerful experiences. Some of the magic rituals, some of the rites are phenomenal. Yeah. It's just it's not it's not my path. My path is story. Yeah. Yeah, but your your stories are they just feed right into all of that, strangely enough. Oh they 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 feed off of it too. Yeah. I just but I look when I when I read like Kabbalistic material I'm really looking, I'm, I'm looking to learn stuff, of course I am. But personally, I'm looking for things that will inspire stuff. Oh, lead me to stories, lead new ideas, insights, how to see something different. That yeah. is more meaningful than learning a structure. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that, definitely. I have a lot of rebellious tendencies that you can, one can see looking at my chart, clearly. Uh -huh. It's definitely all there. Um, I'm wondering also, did you ask the 
Jerry, did you ask the chat if they have any questions for Rachel? Did that already go out? No, you just did. The, okay. the, the bot's been putting it in there. No one's really Okay. But everyone loves you and says that. Thank you. So, <laughs> oh my God, I know. This is <laughs> so great. And also, in the end, in the end here with all of this, uh, what is it you're working on right now that we can look forward to? coming out ah good question i'm working on a bunch of things and it's unclear exactly how far any of them really are so two things that are more developed more significant is um a novella a short novel about a woman who she's a therapist and she has a client who believes she's really an animal who's like imprisoned in this fake human body and, and she becomes fascinated by him starts following him and then she has this well, she tries to tell herself it's a dream or a hallucination of people, of a woman at least, leaving her body, turning into an animal. Uh, and she gets more and more caught up in this story goes on. And she starts looking at her own life in terms of this. And is very frightened to see aspects of her own life in this way. And I actually included the, um, the thing of an Artemis and the, and the dream about the bears in this story. Oh, nice. So there's that. And then something I've been doing Quite some time, actually, put aside, just hang up. I want to go back to it is, you know, the Tao teaching of um, Lao Tzu, not the I Ching. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is 81 short, sort of elliptical, mysterious statements. They're actually very plain statements, but they're plain in a way that you, you can tell right away that they're not plain. <laughs> they have many levels, you know. And so I've been doing a kind of English, what I call English rendition of this. I, I don't know ancient Chinese at all, any Chinese. Um, but there's a book called, I think it's called Total Daddy Ching, something like that. Um, by a man named Starb. Um, and he gives um, the possible English translation usage for every character. So each, each, each line is called the characters, and each character says what might be the possible English mean. So I have that, and then I have um, translations by scholars to give me a sense of the agreement that people have and what's being said. And then I just try to render it in very direct, simple language that will have a, certainly a kind of quality and rhythm to it, but will not change anything, will not editorialize. And most of the translations, every single one I've ever seen, um, changes stuff say what they think it's supposed to say. Um, give an example, this line goes, read simply, Dao, Dao, not Dao. Character for Dao, the character for Dao, the character for negation, the character for Dao. Okay, so, so, some, so it has to be some, the Dao that is something is not the Dao. You know? Now the word Dao, besides meaning path or way, energy, also mean um, hold, tell. Yes. Walk. So some people, minority people say the Tao that is walked is not the Tao. But since Lao talks a lot about walking the Tao, the other one's more likely, he says, so the Tao that can be told is not the Tao. Very simple thing. But people who do the translation are sure that no one's going to understand that. So they add something. Uh. They say, the Tao that can be told is not the everlasting Tao. <laughs> the Tao that can be told is not the true Tao, not the eternal Tao. But none of those words are in the text. You know? There's yeah. no character of everlasting or eternal. So I just try 
you know, knowing nothing, I try to stick to what's there, not believe I know what's okay. And when I first told people I was doing this, a lot of people were offended. It's really? Very arrogant to me. Try to do this without knowing anything, not, not knowing Chinese at all. Also, without knowing any Taoist teaching. You know? They would recommend books to me to read to get some real basic Taoist knowledge. You know? And I did, I, I did my best to read immediately. And I certainly absolutely never read any of them. I will after this is done, because I don't want to be infected by scholars telling me what it's supposed to be about. Yes, so, yeah. There's a purity. Uh, that's exactly why I don't read. <laughs> Anything at all, yes. <laughs> so so I, I sent to quote them this one passage that says something like, um, in pursuit of Tao, something is lost every day. In pursuit of knowledge, something is, no, in pursuit of knowledge, something is gained every day. In pursuit of Tao, something is lost every day. Lost and more lost until you know nothing. <laughs> and and I, I know the famous line, do nothing and nothing will be left undone. Yes. So I don't remember if it says, know nothing and nothing will be left unknown. Probably something like that, but, you know, until you know nothing. I, like I love nothing, your nothing approach on this, of just going through and translating what's there. Well, yeah, and I call it English rendition. I'm not translating. I mean, someone else is. Right, right. English translation, but yeah, but that's what I'm trying to there. And also not front-loading yourself with everything. I do have to admit that I see uh, some tarot things in work now. I see the fool as the Tao. Yeah. You oh, know? I can see was, that. I was just giving a lecture about this. I was at this wonderful conference in New York City, and I was giving a tarot talk. They talked about the first four cards in the Major Arcana, which in modern decks are the Fool, which is zero, then one, two, three, the Magician, the High Priest, and the Empress. And I said in the Tao Te Ching, he says, out of the Tao comes the one, out of the one comes the two, out of the two comes the three, out of the three come the 10,000 things, meaning everything in yes. the world. So yeah. what I said was, out of the Fool comes the Magician, out of the Magician comes the High Priestess, out of the high priestess comes the empress, out of the empress comes everything else. You know? <laughs> yes. And, and so, so the fool is zero. So Alan Moore, in his own tarot uh, work that he did in Comedia, he said the greatest magic act is something to come out of nothing. Yes. The magician to yes. The fool. But then if you take the magician and the high priestess, that's one plus two, that's three, and that's the empress. Yeah. It's actually composed of the magician. And there's also the idea that the Empress is kind of like the great Yoni, too, you know? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. The mother so, goddess, yeah. Yeah, so there's that aspect. That So when can we expect this? Well, I don't know, you know? I, 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 well, I have to try to finish the novel. I've been flashbacks on a whole bunch of other things. Travel and lectures, and trying to bring some other stuff back in print and a possible graphic novel. But I want soon to get back to that. And then when that's done, I think I'll finish the and what? And so the graphic novel you're working on? That's an adaptation of a story of mine, short story. And it's with Robert Place, we talked about before, the tarot artist. Yeah. Um, so he's done some beautiful art for it. It's called Forever. And the story is about the goddess of death, who's simply called Our Lady of Forever, which is forever. Oh, I love that. And her sisters are called um, Ocean and Sky. 
and they meet, and the sisters are always kind of, well, well Sky is always taunting her, and Ocean is innocent. He just thinks it's fun, you know? And they play this game, and we'll tell you how the game goes, but whoever loses has to inhabit a skin body, a mortal thing, for a day, 24 hours, you know? And so um, they kind of trick um, forever, and she loses it. So she chooses this nondescript woman who has no, doesn't have much of a life, so she won't get caught up. You know? But as soon as she enters the woman's body, she forgets who she is. And so the story is about the life she has as this woman, and how she's forced to remember who she is at the end of the story. She doesn't want to. Oh. Um, and so it's, it's sort of a, it's kind of a love story, um, and it's a tragic story. I've been, I'm very excited to see it brought into another medium. Right? I'm excited for all this. Yeah. It's, it's good that you have so much going on, too. Always too much. I can't resist my ideas. <laughs> yeah. I, have a book, I have a book I want to do about dreams. I won't describe now. It'll happen. But it's not. So, uh, by what means may people find your work and get a hold of you? As far as, like... The standard plug here. Well, I have a website, Rachel. I, I have, sorry, www.racialpolic.com. But it's always out of date because it's it's a, it's an old code, so I can't find people to keep it up to date. So I'm gonna have to. I think I have to redo it. What kind but of anyway, code is it? I don't remember now. This was some years ago. Is that why um, you anyway. snickered when I said forty-one bucks? <laughs> Actually, it's forty-three bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I heard but, it. But um, but um. So there's that. That's all the information about me and information of my art and selling tribe deck and so on. Because uh, then there's my blog, um, racialblog.wordpress.com. That's also intermittent because I'm always doing other stuff. And the most up to date stuff is on my Facebook page, which is Rachel Pollock, obviously. You know? And you'll find links to all these in the show notes and the description of this yeah, video. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll, I'll put a link up to this on my Facebook page. Great. Thank you. And I, I already tagged you in the Facebook post from us. So. I'm sure we'll find okay, it okay. easily. That would just come up and I can just yeah. you know, share it. Great, wonderful. Great. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for yeah, joining it's been wonderful. us. You know, I, I've been doing a number of podcasts recently because there's a lot of them now and people mm -hmm. have asked me, you know. Mm -hmm. And this was just great. I just love doing this. I felt it was really, I thought we were on the same, you know, little, little radio cliche, the same wavelength, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I really just enjoyed our whole conversation. So thank you very much. So do we. Thank you. And yes, thanks. thank you, Rachel. This was a treat, treat, treat. I'm happy. Yeah. Yep. And oh, wonderful. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we will see you next week with uh, an obelisk show, right? Next week? Full moon next week? Hello? Yes. The obelisk is next. Oh, good. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, our new show is called <laughs> The Obelisk, and it's on the night of the full moon or the day. As close to the full moon as we can get. But we were going to have uh, Nathan Miller, Nathan Lee, whatever the. Nathan Lee Miller, yeah. Yeah, Nathan, Nathan Foss. Nathan, meet, well, a cult fan's going to be here. It's going to be a good time. So have a good night, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time.